It is good to be with you. We are finishing this morning together our third week. We've done three weeks in, in doubt, three weeks wrestling with doubt. And this will be our third and final week dealing and talking about doubt together, uh, at, least, at least during the sermon. Uh, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do have a Bible in some capacity, be it digital or physical, um, would you go ahead and open to the book of Jude? Book of Jude, J-U-D-E. Some of you didn't know Jude was a book. Um, it is. It's easy to find. You just go to Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible, and then you back up one, and you will find the book of Jude. It is a book that I think often we don't know enough about, spend enough time in, but is highly relevant to what we face as a culture and as a church today. So the, the book of Jude. Like I mentioned, this is our third and final week in doubt. And in the first week, we began our time together by declaring that doubt happens. Doubt happens. It happened to Thomas when he didn't see the resurrected Jesus. His reaction was, I don't believe that. Nobody had thought it was going to happen. No one thought resurrection of Jesus was going to happen. He didn't think it was going to happen. Doubt happens, and it happens for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it happens because we go through an incredibly difficult season. We discover discomfort. We are confronted with something we didn't know um, or are unsure of. And so doubt happens to all of us. And week one, what we talked about was doubt happens. What we do with our doubt matters. We talked about becoming a people who take our doubt and steer it in the direction of looking for truth and for light and for God and not away from God. And so we talked about what happens when you have doubt. And then last week, when Tim taught, he really taught about doubt and its role as a tool of discernment. If you were here last week, Tim talked about the importance of doubt as something that can help us get to what is true, as a, as a testing for the truth. And so we've talked about how doubt happens, doubt's direction. We've talked about doubt as discernment. This morning... We're really going to talk about what does it mean to be a community that has doubters in its midst? What does it look like to be a church, not an individual who doubts, though I imagine you're here this morning. If so, if you're here this morning and you are wrestling with doubts about Christian faith or, or Jesus or the resurrection or, or, or God's goodness or God's character or God's law, I just want to say, welcome. We're so glad you're here. This morning we're talking about what does it mean to be a community that deals with and wrestles with doubt. How do we do that? Because too often, many people feel like the place that they cannot doubt is here, in the church. In my, in my almost 20 years of ministry, the number of times where people have told me that they had questions, they had doubts, they were wrestling with their faith, and the number of times they told me that they could not explore that, open that up, ask questions in the presence of either their families or especially in their churches is so high it's embarrassing. And we'll talk maybe about why that is as we move forward this morning. 
But I want you to know that, that this place, our church gathering, the, the Christian community, does not have a reputation for being a community where it is okay to be honest about our doubts. We do not have a reputation. The church does not have a reputation of being a, a, a community that, that creates a safe place for people to be honest about their real questions and struggles. And so the question is, is that the biblical picture? In this book, which we, where we, we sit underneath God's word, believing that God's word ultimately holds authority, God gives authority through his word, is this the picture we get in the Bible? That we get a picture of, hey, the church should be the place where you can't doubt. You shouldn't be honest about your doubts. You should hide your doubts. I'm going to argue this morning no, and we're going to see, I think, very clearly that the answer to that question is no. So if you've got a Bible, once again, and you've got it open, Jude is where we're going to hang out this morning. Jude is Jesus' brother. Now, some of you already knew that Jesus has a brother named James who writes a book called James. Many people don't know that Jesus has a brother named Jude who writes the book Jude. It's short. It's kind of weird. It's not a book that you hear taught out of very often. But it's important. Jesus' brother, Jude, writes Jude. And the book of Jude is designed to be written to a community of believers. Mostly Jewish believers. Mostly Jewish people who have come to believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And Jude is going to address the fact that the community he is writing to has got doubters in their midst. And Jude had wanted, he says at the beginning, he had wanted to write to the community mostly about salvation. But when he heard that the church, the community, was wrestling with doubt, he, he thought, I need to address the doubt in the community, its source, and what to do in light of it. Here's some context. This community has in its midst false teachers. So Jesus' brother Jude hears that there are false teachers in the community. And the false teachers seem like they're Christian seem like they're Christian, but, it, but they're not. They're false teachers. And, and they've got some problems. What makes them false teachers? Jude will say that they, um, that they seem to be Christian, but they reject the authority of Jesus. And they follow their own instincts instead. So Jude says, I wanted to write you about salvation, but there's these false teachers in your midst who say they're Christian, but instead they follow their own instincts and they reject the authority of Jesus. And because Jude is aware of the impact of these false teachers on the community, he writes Jude. Now, if you look at verse 4 of Jude you'll see that he describes them. And what he says in verse 4 about these false teachers is they are 
um, he says, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. So he says a few things about them. There's false teachers and they're ungodly. And here's what they do. They take the grace of God and they use it for a license to do whatever you want. You can recognize them because their message goes something like this. Jesus is God. He died on the cross. Forgiven us. Now we get to do whatever we want. And it seems good. I mean, it seems kind of nice, right? Who doesn't like the notion, hey, God forgives, therefore, let's do whatever we want. And Jude hears about this, and he goes, no, 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 you're turning grace, God's grace, into a license for disobedience. And when you're doing that, you are denying, Jude says, verse 4, the authority of Jesus. You're denying his sovereignty. You're denying his lordship. You may want him as savior. You don't want him as lord. Maybe you want him to save you and forgive you. You don't want to follow him. And so sometimes you'll discover in our culture today... Christian teachers who will say something similar. They'll say, yes, God is love. Yes, God forgives you. But you don't have to obey Jesus. Jesus said that the way that we love him is by obeying him. That's what he said. Now, if you went and said that to people, you'd be wrong to say that. No one loves you by just obeying you blindly. That's not the case. But Jesus is God, so he gets to say, the way you love me is by obeying me. And there are teachers in our society today and in, the, in, in Jude that, are, that have been proclaiming you can have God's forgiveness. You don't need to obey him at all. Do whatever you want. And Jude says that's turning grace into a license, denying the sovereignty of Jesus and his lordship. So what do we do? So what does the church do? Because when you have people who are proclaiming that, there are others in the church who are feeling that tension. And, and make no mistake, brothers and sisters, we have people in our church who are feeling that tension. Man, I want Jesus, but there's some things I kind of want to do. I don't want to think that's wrong. I don't want to have to hold that opinion I just want forgiveness from God, but I don't, I don't know that I want to, I don't know that I want to give him everything. I don't want him Lord of my whole life. And they're feeling that conflict. And so the church is experiencing division because of doubts. So in Jude, here's how Jude addresses this. Jude 17 through 22. We'll start at 17 and 18. Jude says in verse 17... But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. So Jude says, hey, just to let you know, 
for a long time, it has always been, there's always going to be scoffers, people who say, oh, you believe that? You hold to that? You follow Jesus? I mean, you take him seriously? I mean, you're actually trying to live the life? You're trying to, like he said, obey everything he commanded and taught as per the Great Commission, Matthew Matthew chapter uh, 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 20, verses 18 through 20. The Great Commission, right? We, we, we're going we're gonna to do that? You're going to do that? They, they're scoffers. There's always going to be scoffers. He says, beware of those, right, who say that they're going to follow Jesus, that they're forgiven, and they'll do whatever they want. So what does he say in verse 19? These are the people who divide you. Is the church divided, the community divided, according to Jude? Yes. Why is it divided? It's divided between those who say, Jesus, and go ahead and do whatever you want. You don't have to, you just get salvation and then just whatever you want to think, believe, do, that's you. And then people who say, no, I want him to be Lord as well. And those, there's division there that's happening. And then he says that, that, that they are to, uh, he says that they're divided because they follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. How, how do we know if we have the Spirit? It's whether or not we have a heart that desires to follow Jesus. You want to know if you have the Spirit of God in you? Very simple test. Do you want to obey Jesus? I don't mean do you perfectly obey. I don't mean are you struggling to obey. I mean do you want to obey him? Do you find within you a desire to obey him? And if not, you ought to wonder, maybe I don't actually have the spirit of God in me. Jude says there are people among you. They're dividing you. Instead of listening to the spirit, they listen to their instincts. And they don't have the spirit. Verse 20, what are they to do? Here's what he says. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Verse 21 what, what does he say to do? Verse 20 and 21, he says, you're to build yourselves up. Build yourselves up in the faith. You're to pray in the Holy Spirit. You're to gather together to be a part of the community, spurring each other on, encouraging one another to follow Jesus. You're to be in Scripture. You're to be built up by God's Word. You're to be in prayer. You're to be praying, not just for what you want, but for what God wants. That's what it means to pray in the Spirit, to seek what God desires. You're to remain in His love. Jesus said that we're to abide in Him, to remain in His love. Remain in His love. Abide in Christ. Wait for God's mercy. So he gives some instructions about how do we deal with this division. You've got people who are doubting. They're being kind of pulled apart. You've got people who are wrestling with that. There's division in the church. Let's just call them the, those who are doubting and those who are committed. And to the committed, he says, keep building yourselves up. Make sure you're praying in the spirit. Watch out for these false teachers. And then in verse 22, 
which is where I want to spend our time this morning, here's what he says in verse 22. Be merciful to those who doubt. This is an, an imperative. This is a command of God to the church. Hear me, brothers and sisters. This is what we must do. Be merciful to those who doubt. Remember, the church is divided. You've got people who are wrestling with these false teachers. They like this sort of instinct-driven approach. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Too many Christians today, when they're trying to discover what's right and wrong, start with, yeah, that sounds good to me. No, don't do that. Instead, you ought to ask yourself, well, what does God say? What does his word say? I don't want to just follow my instincts. I want to be led by his spirit, by his word. And there are people who are doubting. And doubting here is the word that means at odds with oneself. There are people who are in the community who are at odds with themselves. They feel this pull between following Christ and this pull between doing whatever they want with the grace of God. They have this inner turmoil. They are of two minds. And what does Jude say that the community is to do to those who are wrestling? He says, be merciful. Be merciful. Don't hate them. Don't fear them. Don't fight them. Don't shun them. Be merciful to those who doubt. Now, Jude will have a stronger word for those who are heading in the direction. They're not doubting. They're just giving over and giving into the false teachers or the false teachers themselves. He has a much stronger word for. But I really just want to focus in on those who are in the church who feel like they are they're being ripped apart and they feel like they're wrestling with doubts about what is right, what is wrong, what to do, what not to do, what to believe, what to trust, what God's like, where to go. They're just, they're feeling that. And, and what, what, what Jude says is, be merciful to those who doubt. If we, as a community, are going to be faithful to God, we must be a merciful community to those who doubt. Now, Mercy. What is mercy? I'm just going to spend a few minutes. I want to talk about what mercy is, what we shouldn't do, what we should do. I'll move quickly. Mercy. What is mercy? Well, let me give you a simple definition. Justice is you get what you deserve. That's justice. How do we know if justice has been served? Justice is you get what you deserve. Mercy is you get what you don't deserve. Or you don't, sorry, you don't get what you deserve. Mercy is you don't get what you deserve. There's an old story about Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte. And a mother once approached Napoleon asking for a pardon for her son. And Napoleon said that her son had committed an offense twice and that justice demanded the death of her son. And she said, I'm not asking for justice. I'm asking for mercy. And Napoleon said, but your son doesn't deserve mercy. And the woman said, sir, 
It wouldn't be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I'm asking for. And then Napoleon said, I will have mercy. And he spared her son. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Sometimes you, you tell your children, hey, if you do this thing, this is the outcome. And they do the thing, and you give them the outcome. That's justice. Sometimes they do the thing, and you say, I'm not going to make you deal with the consequences. I'm not going to give it. That's, that's mercy. But here's the question. I hope this is pinging in your brain. Be merciful to those who doubt. Why would he say be merciful to those who doubt? Seems like a strange thing. What do the doubters deserve? At first glance, that question seems odd. But I want you to understand that doubt and doubters are often seen as a threat. In a, in a, in a community that is pursuing faith, we will always be tempted to see doubt or doubters as a threat. And so what should we not do? What is mercy not, what does it mean we should not do? We should never attack people who are doubting. One of the things that's tricky, right, is that if you're committed to something and you're committed to a goal, you probably see this in the news and the media about like, how you should respond to the naysayers or to the haters or to those who are getting in your way or to those who are keeping you from your goals, right? Get them, get them out of your life. Sometimes if you're pursuing faithfulness to God, you can begin to think that the doubters amongst you are actually the opposition to you because you're so zealous for pure faith. And so doubting becomes something that you're not allowed to do lest you become attacked. We see this in the church. I've already said it. We see it in secular culture all the time. Watch what happens when you are in, a, in, in our world. Watch what happens when you raise your hand and you ask a question about whether or not a certain... Uh, should we? Is it wise for us to teach this kind of curriculum in our kids' schools? Whoa, you're not allowed to ask that question. Ideological purity is demanded. Is it the smartest thing to do to, to be about this position? You can't ask that question. And our, our, our secular culture cares so much about ideological purity that you will be excluded the moment you raise your hand and ask a question. Ideological purity is a real problem. It's tempting to see the doubters as the problem. As Christians, we don't get to do that. We must show mercy. So one of the things we do is we attack doubters. We ought not to do that. That's not showing mercy. We also ignore doubters. That's the other thing we do with people who doubt amongst us. We kind of ignore them. I don't want to attack them. I'm just going to ignore it and maybe it will go away. We do this a lot in our families. Maybe parents, maybe one of your children comes to you and they're wrestling with their faith and then you just kind of ignore their questions, hoping that maybe, just maybe, if you ignore their doubts, eventually it will go away. 
I see this in parents all the time. But we should not ignore doubt or ignore those who are doubting. So it's not, it doesn't mean ignoring. It doesn't mean forcing them to believe what they don't believe. That's another thing we do, right? We just say, hey, just believe. You just got to believe. Hey, but I'm wrestling with this. You just got to believe. If I just force them to believe, then maybe they'll believe, which is not the way, and it leads often to a kind of pretending. Some of you are here right now, in this space right now, and you have felt like you've been forced to believe something you don't really believe, but you don't really feel like you can say you don't because you feel so much pressure. So it doesn't force you to believe. It also doesn't encourage you to doubt. Right? There are some people who say like, oh, you doubt? That's awesome. It's so good that you doubt. You should keep doubting. We used to tell stories in the past of great Christian heroes who moved from doubt to faith. Now I feel like when I open up the Christian book bestseller list, everyone's writing a book about how they're so courageous and so brave because they had the ability to finally start doubting. We almost start to wear doubt as a badge of honor. Doubt in Scripture can, can be characteristic of believers and non-believers. But doubt is viewed practically and spiritually as it relates to our trust in the Lord as something that is not valuable or commendable. So we don't want to attack the doubters. We don't want to ignore the doubters. We don't want to pressure the doubters into believing. We don't want to encourage them to remain in doubt. So what does it mean to be merciful? What must we do? Well, when I think of mercy, probably the, the best place to look in your Bible for an example, a, a practical example of what it looks like, is the story of the Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells a story of a Good Samaritan, tells it to a, 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 um, a, a, a teacher of the law. And that story ends, if you don't know the story, the story ends with the teacher, with Jesus asking the, the teacher of the law, who was a neighbor to the man who was on the side of the road? And the response is, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. So I want to tell you, I want to kind of just say, this is what it looks like for us to be a community that is obeying Jude 22, be merciful to those who doubt. First, to be merciful means to see people in their need. If you remember the story of the Good Samaritan, the, the man is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's beaten up. He's attacked. All of his stuff is stolen. He's on the side of the road. The priest and the Levite, they, 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 they cross on the other side of the road. But the Samaritan sees the man sees him as someone who is in need. The temptation amongst many is to see doubters as victims of their own irresponsibility. Maybe they haven't read their Bible enough, or maybe they're spending time in the wrong places, listening to the wrong teachers in the wrong crowds. But the first thing mercy demands that we do is that we see people. We see them. The late American writer Irma Bombeck shared a story about a time she was waiting for a flight in an airport. She was reading a book in order to shut out the commotion around her. Any of you like 
just stare at your phone or read a book at the airport sometimes in hopes that the person next to you doesn't start a conversation. So she's going through that. And she said that a voice next to her that belonged to an elderly woman said, I bet it's cold in Chicago. And she, stone-faced, replied to the woman, it's likely. And the woman said, I haven't been to Chicago in years. And she sort of looked up from her book, and the woman said, my son lives there. And she, looking kind of over her book, said, that's nice. Went back to her book. After a few quiet moments, the woman said to her, my husband's body is on this plane. I'm taking him to be buried. We've been married for 53 years. And Bombeck says, I don't think I have ever detested myself more than I did at that moment. Another human being was screaming to be heard and in desperation had turned to a cold stranger who was more interested in a novel than in the real-life drama at her elbow. The woman, elderly woman, talked numbly and steadily until they boarded the plane and then she found her seat in another section and as Emma held up, hung up her coat, she heard the elderly woman say to someone she was sitting next to on the plane, I bet it's cold in Chicago. People need to be seen in community. We need to listen for people who are struggling and wrestling with their doubts. We need to see doubters as people who are in turmoil, wrestling and in need of mercy. So first, mercy sees. Secondly, mercy feels. Remember the story of the good Samaritan? The Samaritan not just sees the person, the man in need of help, he is moved, the text says in Luke 10, 33. He feels the struggle. Mercy begins when your hurt comes into my heart. It means more than just sympathizing with someone. It's not just feeling sorry for someone. No, it means entering into the struggle with them. It doesn't abandon faith by any means, but it does mean entering into the struggle with them. When people in our church are wrestling with God and wrestling with their doubts and their concerns and their questions, it's not just enough to just see them in need of it. We need to be moved towards them, to meet them in the midst of it, that they must know that we are the kind of people who want to sit with them in the midst of their struggles. Brothers and sisters, we have people in our church who will not admit the things that they are wrestling with because they are afraid that if they say it, they will be looked down upon and they will be left with no one to walk with them through the struggle. Rabbi Elliot Kukla once described a woman with a brain injury who would sometimes fall to the floor. People would rush around her immediately to lift her up on her feet before she was quite ready. She told Rabbi Kukla, 
I think people rush to help me because they're so uncomfortable with seeing an adult lying on the floor. What I really need is someone to get down on the ground with me. Sometimes we need people who will get into our mess with us. It is what God has done for us in Jesus. Amen? He entered into our mess. We have a responsibility to enter into the messes of those who are wrestling with doubt. Third, mercy acts. It doesn't encourage you to stay in doubt about God, but it enters in and brings you towards the truth, towards healing, towards faith, towards the light. With gentleness, it sacrifices time and money and energy and carries. Make no mistake, mercy is not weak. Mercy is very strong, but mercy is soft to the touch. The story of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan acted. Genuine mercy involves interrupting our schedule, our time, our energy. It means seeing someone, getting in their doubts with them, and then walking with them towards the truth. It's meeting their need, not just feeling it. Maybe I would say this. To be merciful to people who doubt in the church, being merciful is not a spectator sport. It's active. It's something that we take on. It guides to the truth. There's a Biola professor at... Uh, at Biola, a professor named, um, named Sean McDowell. Sean McDowell, his father is uh, Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell wrote a giant book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. That's the title of the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Now, if you can't already figure out what the book is about, it's a Christian book that's essentially a giant list of sort of arguments about why Christian faith is true. And Sean grew up in a home where his dad had written a book showing all the ways Christian faith is true. And when Sean McDowell entered into his 20s, he started to doubt his faith. So he says that he decided to share the doubts with his dad, who was an evangelist and an apologist for 50 years, over 50 years. So he sits down with his dad and says to his dad, Dad, I am struggling to believe what you have written about. It takes a lot of courage to say that to your father, who's written a book, whose life. And it takes a lot of courage to say it to your dad when you want his approval. And maybe you're feeling like, if I, I don't want to disappoint him because I don't believe as strongly as he does. And Josh McDowell, who wrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict, looked at his son, Sean, and Sean said that his dad's response took him completely by surprise. And here's what Josh said to Sean, his son. He said, I think it's great that you want to find truth. It's wise not to simply accept things just because you were told them. You've got to find out if Christianity is true. 
You know that your mom and I love you regardless of what you decide. Seek after truth and take to heart the things mom and I have taught you. Reject what you have learned growing up only if you believe it's not true. This shocked him. His dad said, hey, reject what we have taught you if you come to believe it's not true. We love you. We're after the truth. That is demonstrating mercy. So let me ask you, will you help doubters move towards faith? Will you take the time to see them, to get into their doubt with them, and to guide them towards faith? Will you be willing to go slow? Will you do it gently and firmly? Some of you will need to do this with your children. Some of you will do it with your friends. Some of you will need to do it with people in your community group. I hope that you will be merciful, that you will see, you will feel, and you will act towards those who doubt. John Chrysostom says, he's an early church leader, he said, mercy imitates God and disappoints the devil. Because mercy says you don't get what you deserve. And if you're a Christian, and I, I hope you, if you're not, I hope you would hear this. But if you're a Christian, you should know this. One of the key reasons we worship Jesus is because he came so that we did not get what we deserve. What, what is the punishment for our sin, our rebellion? It is judgment and death. And Jesus came to take judgment and death in our place so that we could then stand before God. We would get God and forgiveness and salvation and heaven and, the, and his spirit in us. We would get that because Jesus took our punishment upon him so that whoever believes in him and trusts in him would become a new creation having the very forgiveness of God. Lamentation says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God is merciful. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. And if we are not merciful to those who doubt, then it is either because we, are, we don't know the mercy of God or because we are choosing to be unfaithful to God. So let me just close by saying, if you are doubting, maybe you're going through a difficult season, maybe you've got big questions, maybe you're feeling a bunch of pressure, maybe you're embarrassed to admit that you don't know something that you feel like you should know, but you don't know it, and now you're too afraid to be honest about it. If you are feeling inner turmoil about your faith, and you are wrestling and struggling with doubt, I want you to know, you are welcome here. We want to see you, to be with you. We will not abandon you, and we will not force you to believe. But I will promise you that we will continually point you to Jesus. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you command us to be merciful to those who doubt. And Lord, there are, there are brothers and sisters among us who are wrestling with doubt. I want to pray for them right now. Some of them are doubting their salvation. Some of them are doubting your goodness. 
Some are doubting your sovereignty, if you're in control. Some of you are doubting if you'll keep your promises. Some are doubting if your way is really best. And Lord, I pray that they would find mercy here in this community. Lord, I want to pray for those who are here this morning who are not Christian because they've got too many questions and too many doubts. And Lord, I pray that this morning they would, you would give them eyes to see the beauty of the forgiveness that they have in Jesus. You'd give them the ability to understand the beauty that, that, that though they, they sin, though they fall short, though they turn from you, though they often live with no reference to you, God, you are a merciful God. And you have sent Jesus in our place so that we might be forgiven. Lord, I pray that those who do not know you this morning would come to faith in you this morning. And Lord, most of all, would you help us as a church become a church filled with mercy to those who are doubting. Help us to become a place where people can open up their questions, their vulnerabilities, their frustration, their confusion, and find a church that will see them, that will get into it with them, that will not abandon them, but will walk with them towards you and towards the truth. Give us the ability to be merciful, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>